You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. So let's pray. Let's pray before we dive into the text. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the blessing that you have given us this morning to come and to gather with other believers to enter into a time of worship where we sang songs that reminded us about your goodness and your faithfulness, songs that reminded us of the truth of the gospel, songs that reminded us of how you have come to heal us, songs that have reminded us that you are the one who deserves the glory, songs that have reminded us of your work at the cross and the power of the empty tomb, songs that have reminded us that you have beaten Satan, sin, and death. There is no shame. There is no guilt for those who are in you. So God, thank you for that time in worship, for our hearts to be redirected back. And, and even in those moments of worship, being in a place where we can ask that your fire, that the fire of your spirit would come and fill us and even burn out that which is not holy. So God, we, we just pray that you would Keep us in that posture of worship as we come to your word. Help us to hear from you today. God, I pray that. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. Let's watch this video as we go into the sermon. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without faults in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace. He has purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. Well, he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Now, as we jump into our text this week, we're going to be in verses 3 through 6 of Ephesians chapter 1. And what I want us to do first, uh, by way of introduction, is I want us to wrestle uh, with a couple of questions. Uh, and I, I just ask that you just kind of hang with me for a little bit so that we can just kind of, I want to set this up a little bit for us, okay? So if you give me some latitude there as we do that. Here's the question. Did, did you choose God before, uh, um, or did God choose you? Uh, before you chose him, or did God choose you because 
you chose him, okay? Did God choose you before you chose him? Or did God choose you because you chose him? And you might say, Joe, um, we're just arguing semantics. And, and I, I want to say right on the front edge, I don't think that we're going to argue semantics. I think that what I want to argue for is, is a truth in this text that helps to define who God says we are. And the way that we answer this question, these questions, um, I think lands us in some completely different places in terms of our identity, in terms of who we're able to say that we are. Did God choose you before you chose him? Or did God choose you because you chose him? <clears throat> I believe that one of the core truths of the Bible is that God chose us before we were ever able to choose him. And as you think about this, I want you to ask this question. Think about this. Like, what makes this doctrine or what I'm teaching you here, um, what makes that so hard for us to believe? What makes that so hard for us to, to hold on to, to latch on to? Is it, is it simply that uh, somewhere deep down inside, you, you've always believed that God chose you because you chose him? Like, God, I, you chose me because I chose you, right? Is there somewhere deep down inside of you that has always believed that? Um, have you always believed that, that, that God just somehow knew that someday you would just come to your senses, right? Um, is it just that God somehow knew that? God knew that you would just somehow come to your senses, that you would become a, a, a good little boy or a good little girl, right? Um, and, and that at that point, because he knew that you were going to do that and that you were going to at some point choose him, he then chose you, right? He somehow maybe looked throughout the corridors of time and he was like, oh, that one there finally got past themselves and chose me. Therefore, I choose them. Uh, is that maybe what's going on inside of you as you have thought about this doctrine? And maybe you haven't thought much about this doctrine, and this might provoke you to think this way and ask some of these questions. My question is, it, it, is, is, is if we believe that God chooses us because we chose him, doesn't this mean that, it, that at some point, somehow, then we control God's decision to choose us? And just think with me for a minute about that. If God made that choice of us based upon our choice of him, then don't we then control whether he makes a decision about us or not? And, and, and isn't it based on our good behavior at that point? Wow, Eric acted so good and chose me, right? Behaved so well. I, I now therefore choose him. That doesn't, that doesn't set well with me as I, as I look at the scriptures and as we read the passage and look at Ephesians. I mean, ask yourself this question too. If we give into that kind of a belief, what kind of comfort does that give you? What kind of assurance does that give you deep down inside? I think about it this way, like, what happens when I don't choose God then? If, I, if I'm going to chase that bunny trail down, right? If I'm going to believe that way. Like, if, if God chooses me because I chose him first, then when I decide not to choose him later, then doesn't my right standing with God, my relationship with God, doesn't it always fall into jeopardy then? That, that, that doesn't seem to be a, a comforting um, or, or, or assuring. You might say at that point, um, and that's where God's grace comes in. That, that might be the argument, right, deep down inside of you. As you think about this, as you chase this bunny trail down, that's where God's grace comes in. That's when I stop choosing him. And I, and I think on, on, on one side, we could argue that for a long time, that this is true. When we don't choose God, this is where God's grace smacks us in the face, right? This is where God's grace begins to taste so good. But, but if we're in kind of this headspace of, I believe that God chooses me because he foresaw that I would choose him first, and then, then we would have to say that it, at some point then when I stop choosing God, that's where God's grace kicks in, there. I would argue that as well. I would argue against that. And I would say that, like, like why would God's grace be good enough when I refuse to choose him 
if it wasn't good enough when I did choose him. Follow me? Why, why, why would God's grace be uh, good enough at that? Let, let, me, let me put it this way. Um, if my relationship with God began with my work of choosing God, then, then why would I need his grace to sustain what my work began? God's grace, the mean of God's grace is that we receive what we do not deserve. And God's grace sustains the work that God begins, not the work that you and I begin. Think about it this way, too. Think about this. Um, you maybe have all asked this question. Anyways. Like, where does God draw the line anyways? Like, there's got to be a clear-cut line here at some point, right? Um, like, like, okay, does God want us um, um, walking around with this kind of uneasy fear, um, like wondering when we're going to behave so wrongly uh, that he, like, runs over to his book with his little eraser and starts erasing and blotting our names out? Like, isn't anybody ever else walk around with that kind of, uh, kind of fear and uneasiness? Yeah, like, God, when's God just going to be done with me? Like, when's he going to have enough of me? Um, those kinds of questions are valid. I, I, I think we all have a tendency to ask that at some point and question, is, is God going to continue to hang with me? I, I don't feel um, good enough to even be in his presence. And, and has he given up on me uh, at this point? Think with me this way. Let me just keep drilling. I want to drill and drill and drill away on this uh, for a few minutes. Think with me for a minute about what this kind of belief system does to our relationship with God. It's really what we're talking about. I'm just redirecting our thinking in a different fashion. If we get off on the wrong foot, believing that God chose us because we chose him, then what I think happens is I think that we wind up spending like the rest of our lives fighting tooth and nail to either keep what we think we earned, which caveat, by the way, we cannot earn it. That's why I want to argue against this so much this morning, because I don't want us as a church, I don't want you as a believer, I don't want you, if you're here and you're not a believer yet, and, and you're, you're receiving this invitation through preaching to come and believe and trust, I don't want us to get off on the wrong foot. And I know how easy it is, I've experienced it myself, it's too easy to spend the rest of our lives like fighting tooth and nail to keep what we've earned. But then on the, on, on the other hand, on the other hand, I, I, believe that, I believe that if we believe that God chose us and therefore we were enabled to choose him, then I think the way that we'll spend the rest of our lives is that we'll spend the rest of our lives living out of the power of his grace rather than the instability of our works. So think about that. I mean, the, the, again, this may seem minute, but I will tell you this is not minute. This, this doctrine that we're getting ready to jump into and dive into that Paul teaches in these four verses is astounding and it's massive. And it has deep, massive implications on what road we are on in terms of our relationship with the Lord. Let me take uh, one more angle, one kind of last angle. Um, if you and I live like we chose God first, and then he was just inclined, or, or he just had to choose us because he saw that we chose him, right? Um, aren't we just treating God at that point kind of like a butler or, or a plumber or a, uh, or a construction contractor maybe? Um, isn't this more of a like transactional relationship at that point? Hey God, I chose you. You've got to choose me and fix me now. Anybody else ever get in that headspace at all? I've been there, okay? Um, are we just treating him that way? And, and if we get there and we say that, we say like, God, I chose you, now you gotta choose me and you gotta fix me. And then what happens? What happens when the relationship doesn't pay out or produce what you expected it to? When what you invested doesn't return what your heart expected it to return, then what? When we don't feel connected to Jesus, right? Um, when our growth is, is slow. 
our growth in holiness. When we don't feel like we're really part of the family, when we question God as our father during those seasons when, when the result isn't what we expected and we're just in this transactional relationship with God, what, what happens? Isn't it easy at that point to then like retract our side of the bargain, right? Like cut off our side of the contract. I'm out. I'm finding somebody else. I'm going to go on the internet and look for somebody else to dive into a new partnership with, right? If, if, we, if, we, if we approach God this way, I think this is some of the logical outcome. We begin to walk into this in despair. We begin to look for other gods to fulfill us, to satisfy us, to give us what our hearts long for. Does that feel familiar to you? As you think about this, have you walked down that pattern? Or maybe you're in that pattern now. Maybe that's the way you've been approaching God this whole time. And into that, the Apostle Paul speaks in Ephesians. Truly, God speaks in Ephesians through the Apostle Paul as he writes. Because the great news that I think Paul kind of unpacks for us in these verses is that God in his sovereign grace stays the course with us. That's something to give us comfort and assurance. It comforts me to know that God in his sovereign grace stayed the course with me. He knew from the get-go that I personally wanted a God that I could control. He knew that I was looking for a transactional fix. He knew that I believed that I could earn his love. He knew that I thought that my signature on my adoption papers was more powerful and more enduring than his. He knew all these things about me, and yet he still chose me. Is that a place that you can speak from this morning? Can you say the same thing with me? Do you know that not in a headspace of pride because, oh, God chose me because I was so cool? Or, or are, you, are you in a place where you can say, man, I know that God chose me though I lived so poorly and horrifically against him. He chose me. Can you say that? Is that your identity? Do you know that this is who you are? And one of the questions that I think about too is I, as I look at this topic is I begin to ask the question like, why? Why would God choose me? Anybody else ever wonder that too? Why would God choose me or you or uh, anyone? If you know the human race well enough, you know the stories of the characters in the Bible well enough, right? I mean, Abraham got impatient with God's promises, and instead of waiting for his promised son to come from his wife named Sarah, he hooks up with who? Hagar, right? Hooks up with Hagar and tries to make it happen. And then now thousands of years later, we still see the outcome of the war between the Ishmaelites and the Israelites. Hagar's baby and Sarah's baby still happening, just affected thousands of years because of that one seemingly small sin, Jacob, Jacob, right, and Esau, Esau desperately wanted something to eat, traded his entire inheritance for that and never found a chance to repent. I mean, the list goes on and on. We've talked, I talked about David this week with some folks too, I mean, these stories have just been ruminating this week. David sees the naked lady on the house next door, right, faces the consequences as Nathan comes and talks to him, yet David is still a man after God's own heart repents from that. Um, so even as you look at the, the, the biblical narrative and story of the people in the Bible, and as we look at ourselves, and as we look all throughout the world, we see, what do you, what do you see? I, I see a big mess, personally. I, I, I see a big mess. Um, why would God want anything to do with us? Why would he choose us? It's a valid question to ask. Let's look. Look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that 
we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What this passage does in these short verses is unpacks a massive doctrine for us. I cannot even begin to exclaim how massive the doctrine is in these verses that Paul unpacks. If you're into bullet points in my head, this is what I see. I see a big bullet point over the top called the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is rooted uh, in verse 4 of our text where the Apostle Paul says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And in one regard, this doctrine could be illustrated for us, uh, if I'm just going to start there with that great big bullet point in my head, it uh, could be illustrated for us by the picture of the ballot box, right, during the election cycle where we go and we cast our vote for the candidate that we want to see elected or chosen, right? If you think about that electoral cycle. And I think while that illustration helps to paint uh, the picture of the truth that God does choose us and has chosen us in Christ in a very general way, this illustration does fall terribly short. Uh, so I think it's important to kind of tease it out just a little bit before we dive into our points for this morning. Um, uh, it's important to tease it out because in, 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 in an electoral cycle, when we go to the ballot box, what you and I actually do is as we go and we, we cast our vote, right? We cast our vote for the candidate of our choice based on what? Think about it. We cast votes for our, for our candidate that we want. We, we, we base it on their public performance. Somebody's radar has got to be going off right now, right, as you think about the implication of if we tie electoral voting to God's election of us. While there is a picture here that connects, there's some real unhealthy ways that this can also feed the way we understand God's election of us. Because when we elect or vote other people, we base our vote on them um, upon their public performance, their public record, their, their, their experience, their, their qualifications. This is how we cast votes. This is how we choose. We choose the candidate that we want to elect basically because we believe that they will do a better job than the other candidates or the one that's currently there. Uh, and we believe that they will represent our values the best. Right? Am I speaking our language close? Okay. This is kind of how we engage that in our culture. I will tell you that the way God engages the doctrine of election is vastly different than that. Vastly different. That's why it's important for us to explain terms. This isn't what happens when God chooses his people. God did not go to the ballot box where he wrote your name into a form or, or checked a box next to your name because he knew that you would represent his values the best or because he knew that you would be a better choice than the person sitting next to you or across from you. God chose the names of those who would become part of his family before anything else was created. He made this choice apart from any performance or any record or any experience or any qualification on your part whatsoever. The way that God chooses us, his choice to save sinners and make them a part of his royal family. It was a choice that he made despite our performance, despite our experience, despite our public record. But again, why, right? Why would God choose any of us? God knows that we're fallen. God knows that we're broken. God knows that we're sinful to the core. He knows that we won't represent him well. He knows that if we were left to ourselves, we would never choose him on our own. God knows our record. He knows that we would disqualify ourselves as candidates for the family of God if we were left to ourselves. If our relationship with God was based on our ability or our activity or our works or our power, then we'd be doomed from the start. Why would God choose you and I? Here's what I think. Here's what I believe from this text. I believe it teaches us that, that God chose us for three basic purposes, three basic purposes that are actually really massive pieces of doctrine. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, and I believe that what the Apostle Paul is saying and writing 
in these words. I think he says this and writes this to give us assurance and, uh, and confidence. But if, and if you're here and you're not a believer, um, what I want you to hear is I want you to hear that I'm stoked that you're here, glad that you're here, and I believe that this is an invitation for you to find security and assurance in God. But ultimately, what I think Paul is teaching and what God wants to drive home to us here is that if we are a believer, and if we're to hear the invitation to become a believer, then, then what we're hearing is this doctrinal election that, that God chose you. God chose you to be united to Jesus, number one, chose you to be sanctified in Jesus, number two, and he chose you to be adopted through Jesus, number three. So we're going to take those one at a time, and we're going to dive into those uh, over the course of the next few moments. Number one, God chose me to be united to Jesus. Like when I think of being united to anyone, the first thing I think of is marriage. I think of the bond of marriage. I think of the, the vows of marriage. I think of the, the commitment of marriage. I think of the completeness of marriage. These things describe the unity and the togetherness that happens in marriage. I know that when we look around us, we see brokenness instead of wholeness in relationships. We see division instead of unity in relationships. We see hurt rather than healing in relationships. We see separation rather than togetherness. We see, we see brokenness, right? I use this illustration not to shame anyone who's going through the pain of relational brokenness, either in marriage or in any other place. I simply want to use that illustration to draw our attention to a point of pain and the sense of hopelessness that, that relational brokenness brings to every one of us. And my hope then is to describe the healing and the wholeness that, that our, our eternal union with Jesus brings. God chose me to be united to Jesus forever. Can you say that this morning? Is that where you at? Do you know that intensely? Like that is your, this is who you are, chosen to be united to Jesus. When Paul says in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's simply describing the blessings that are given to each of us through our union or our marriage to Jesus. The phrase, in Christ, in that verse, it's literally meant to evoke a picture or a painting for us of our inseparable and eternal union with Jesus. This began before the hands of time ever began. We are blessed in this union with Jesus right now. We'll be blessed with it in the future, and we've been blessed with it since before the foundations of the earth. I say it this way. Before time began, God the Father chose you and I to be united or married or connected to Jesus. He chose us to be united to Jesus in a marriage that will never end. Between you and Jesus, there is no divorce. For those of us that have experienced the pain of divorce here and now, you can find great hope in knowing that if you are married to Jesus and united to him because he chose you and you are saved and you heard his voice, you will never experience that same pain with Jesus. This world we live in doesn't promise anything but pain and hardship and brokenness. But the God who chose you the God who has chosen to unite you to the perfection of Jesus. And listen, it's not like when he chose to unite you to Jesus' perfections, perfection that, that he like took your sins away and then left the bank account empty for his bride. At one point, you and I, we prostituted ourselves out to every whim and sinful desire that was alive in us. But God didn't save us from the filth of the prostitution house that we once lived in with a bankrupt account only to leave us there? Man, God actually came and rescued us from that place of filth and sin and bankruptcy. And he filled up our bank accounts with the everlasting riches of his eternal presence. These are big words I'm using this morning. I hope that it comes through. God chose us to be united to Jesus forever. Is that something that you know intensely today? Number two, God chose me 
to be sanctified in Jesus. We'll move on from being united to Jesus to being sanctified in Jesus. When I, when I say that God doesn't leave us, leave us in, the, in, in the bankrupt whorehouse of our sinfulness, when I say that, when I say that God doesn't leave us in the bankrupt whorehouse of our sinfulness, what I'm alluding to is this second principle, that God chose us to be sanctified in Jesus. When we realize the depth of our sin and the horror of our war against God and the, the filthiness of the ways that we've given ourselves over to our sinful desires and behaviors, when we realize that, we're left with the weight of the blame and the shame that we feel. When you realize just how despicable you and I have been in the ways that we've lived and acted, we're left with blame and shame for who we've been and what we've done. It's on our shoulders at that point. We feel the heaviness of our shame deep inside. In a sense, we realize how dirty we are, right? We realize how gross our clothing is. We realize how hopeless we are to get ourselves out of that house or to change those articles of clothing. But this is the beauty of the doctrine of, of, of election. This is where the beauty of the doctrine of election comes in. I honestly believe that without this doctrine of election, the message of the gospel is not good news at all. This is why the Puritans and the Reformers called this a doctrine of grace. The doctrine of election is a doctrine of grace that helps me and you to understand that the gospel is good news. Why? It's good news because God chose us to be united to Jesus. And not only that, but he chose us to be sanctified in Jesus. In other words, when you think about this word sanctification, the doctrine of sanctification, you go, what does that word mean anyways? In Jesus, our blame and our shame is destroyed. That's really what sanctification means. Our blame and our shame is destroyed, and it's continuing to be destroyed, and it will at one point be completely destroyed. Our sin is put to death. In the words of one scholar, listen to this, God no longer blames you for what shames you. God no longer blames you for what shames you. He doesn't pay your debt to leave you with a zero balance. This is why the Apostle Paul says that God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him. In other words, when God the Father chose each of us to be united to Jesus through the work of Jesus at the cross, he planned to send his very own spirit into each of us so that our zero balance could be changed to overflowing with God's presence. This is the beauty of this doctrine. This is the work of the Trinitarian Godhead at work in us. The Father chooses, the Son saves, and the Spirit sanctifies, cleanses, removes the blame, removes the shame, removes the guilt, transfers over to us Christ's perfection. You are perfect, sanctified, being sanctified, and at some point will be completely sanctified. Literally, literally means to be holy or cleansed. It's a picture of dirty bed sheets, filthy clothing, being made white as snow. Think about this. That's the picture. And then the prophets all throughout the Old Testament, man, they, they screamed this from the sidelines, right? They screamed this from the sidelines at Israel, much like a, a real excited dad. Not, not so much the angry dad like, Oh, you messed it up again. No, more like, more, and there were times when they did that, don't get me wrong, but in this case, they're screaming from the sidelines, in more like an, an excited dad who's excited because their kid is playing really well in a game, right? You get that picture in your head of the excitement of our Father in heaven on the sidelines saying, go, keep going, get after it, do it. The prophets were speaking for God in that way throughout the Old Testament when they said things like this, though your sins, they're like scarlet. And even though your hands have been like an enemy of God, even though you've been that way, you've made some mistakes and you've walked this way, though your heart has played the harlot, though you've been that way, that does not define you. I have given you my presence and I have washed your world white as snow. That's the prophets from the sidelines in the Old Testament. 
The psalmist from the Old Testament yelled things like this, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Think about how high that is. Heavens are above the earth. And east is from the west. That's how far I've cast your sins away from me. Those are the things that our Father God says in heaven. These are biblical pictures of what it means to be cleansed or sanctified by Jesus' work at the cross and then the outcome of God's declaration of sanctification over us. I want to live out of that. I want to live out of that picture of my identity in God. God chose us to sanctify us in Jesus. I don't know about you, but this, this one's hard for me to receive. When I think about this doctrine, it's hard for me to receive it and to believe it. It's hard for me to believe that God no longer blames me for what shames me. It's hard for me to believe every moment of every day that God doesn't pay my debt and then winds up leaving me with a zero balance so that, so that I can wind up trying to fill up my spiritual bank account by my works. It's hard for me to believe this and live it. This is a tough one. This is a massive one, right? It's hard for me to believe that since before the beginning of the world, God declared that I am clean and in the present moment, he is making me clean. And in the future, he will make me completely clean once and for all. Done. Finished. Work over. It's hard to believe. I see my faults. It's like they're always in front of me. When I look in the mirror, I don't, I don't always see what God sees. I see someone that I think is dirty or broken or guilty or full of shame. That's, that's what I see when I think of myself sometimes. Who I see in the mirror is deeply attached to the things that I've done. And I find it so easy to be defined by my behavior rather than by God's sovereign choice over me. It's hard for me to trade in the image of me that I see in the mirror for the image of me that God has in his pocket. It's hard for me. When my growth is slow, it gets even harder. When the sins of my past rear their ugly head in my present moment, it's hard for me to believe that God has cleansed me and that he's still cleansing me, that he will completely cleanse me in heaven. It's hard for me to believe. But you want to know, you want to know what keeps my head and my heart in this? When I start struggling in that headspace where I'm like, I'm having a hard time believing this. I'm having a hard time receiving this. When I get there, here's what keeps my head and my heart in this. Here's what keeps me rooted in the truth that God chose me to be sanctified in Jesus. It's this simple truth from this other passage by the very same author of the passage we're studying today from Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. I am sure of this, Paul argues. I am certain of this, that he who began a good work in you, who began that work in you? He who began a good work in you. I didn't begin the work, and you didn't begin the work. God began that work. And when God begins that work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. God is the one who begins that work of sanctification in us. He's the one that begins that work of uniting us to Christ. He's the one that continues the work of uniting us to Christ. He's the one who continues the work of sanctifying and cleansing and removing our shame and removing our guilt. He's the one who continues that work and he'll continue it until the day of completion. God is not a construction worker who gets fired and walks out of the house because we didn't like what he brought to the table. God is a God who continues to stay with us through those moments when we think we can control him, when we think we can abuse him, when we think we can be rebellious against him, and when we come back and say, God, I'm sorry, I need you. He's the God who is consistent and stays there with us. He will be the one to complete it. That truth invigorates me. That truth has held me firm for years. It reminds me that this work of sanctification, the work of cleaning me up, this work of making me holy, this work of removing my blame or crushing my shame, this work of destroying the presence and the power and the penalty of sin that has been alive in me for so long, this work is the work of my Father in heaven. He is my daddy. I can say that. The question is, is can you say that with assurance? And when you say it, does it give you comfort? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Does it motivate you? Point number three is that God chose me to be adopted through Jesus. God chose me to be adopted through Jesus. 
And what I want to do here um, is I want to I kind of want to press pause for a minute, okay? So I feel like we've been spending lots of time way up here on some mountaintops. And, 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 in, and in many ways, this is what the book of Ephesians is like, especially in the first three chapters. We're going to spend a lot of time on some mountaintops looking at some grand, massive doctrinal and theological teachings and truths. I want to call our attention to the massive amount of doctrine that we have in front of us in these four verses this morning. There, there is more here than I could possibly ever think of tackling in 55 minutes. <laughs> Some of you are working through Porterbrook right now, okay? Um, and, and our Porterbrook courses deal with uh, these doctrines in, in a super in-depth way. And in fact, listen, listen, there's an entire nine-week Porterbrook course that is completely devoted to the first point that I just preached about being unified in union with Christ. So, um, so trying to like, condense all of that and distill all of that into like <clears throat> 10 minutes of communication, I would just tell you we are barely scratching the surface with our pinky fingers. Change fingers, pinky fingers, because it's smaller. We're barely scratching the surface of these doctrines. There are entire volumes of commentary that deal with the fine details of the doctrines of union with Christ and sanctification. There's still even far more volumes of commentary on the doctrine of adoption, which is about what we're going to dive into here in a minute. So we've moved through union, we went through sanctification, and we're going to land in adoption here in a minute. These are insane amounts of doctrine for us to deal with this morning. That's my point. You might feel like you are getting a truckload of information and things to think about. And I think it would be wise for us um, as we go into this last little bit of text, as we talk about what it means to be chosen for adoption, it'd be good for us to pause and pray again, right? So let's do that. Father, in, in these um, short moments, in these short verses that takes us 30 seconds to read, Father, it'd be far too easy for us to move on too quickly and begin to think, I gave that 30 seconds of my attention. And to miss the, the grand wealth of what you are saying through the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians here. So God, please like, settle our hearts and our minds and remove any distraction or barriers that might be in the way of us hearing even just this final point about what it means to be adopted by a daddy who calls us son when we used to live as his enemies. Amen. So God chose us to be united to Jesus. He chose us to be sanctified in Jesus. And then lastly, he chose us to be adopted into the family of God through Jesus. The Apostle Paul says that God, in his own love, verses, uh, tail end of verse 4 all the way through 6, in his own love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. How long did it take me to read that? Ugh. And you know how long we should spend the rest of our lives when the implications of that burn deep within us. What Paul is saying here is that God chose us to be adopted through the work of Jesus because of the Father's love according to the Father's eternal plan so that we would become his possessions and objects of his love who then spend the rest of eternity praising him for the grace that he has lavished upon us in Christ. There are four grand and glorious miniature mountains of truth that spider web out of this mountain of truth in regards to adoption. First of all, when God chose us, he based his choice of us upon his love, not our own. He based it upon his love, not our love, because God's love never fails. But our love does fail. So it makes sense that God chose us not because we loved him so well, but instead because of his own love for us. God's choice of us is based on his perfect and never-ending or never-failing love. That's one. Second little mountaintop, 
that God predestined. I love this word. Some of you hate this word. And the reason why is because you and I can't answer all the questions about this word. So I'll just tell you that now. We're not even going to try. God predestined or he pre-planned to choose us for adoption through Christ according to the purpose of his will. Meaning that you and I were not a mistake. That's, that's the best way I can distill that down. God's predestination of us, his pre-plan for us, means that you and I are not mistakes. We are part of God's plan of salvation. The blueprints of the story of salvation were written before the blueprints for the earth were even laid out. We are not mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes, and God doesn't get caught by surprise either. The fact that you are actually hearing this message today doesn't catch God by surprise, and it doesn't cause him to go running back to the drawing board. God had a plan. This is his will. This is his design. This is his choice. And this is what it means to be predestined. Planned, not mistaken. Best way I could distill that down for us. Third, little mountain. God adopted us to himself as sons through Christ Jesus. You and I once were enemies of Jesus. We lived in a shabby orphanage that was staffed by our sin. Our old mom and dad in that orphanage was sin and shame. Our aunt and our uncle were there in that orphanage as well, and their names were rebellion and guilt. But God, in his rich and sovereign grace, came to that adoption agency and he said, that little boy or that little girl, that man or that woman is mine. They belong to me, and nothing in all eternity can ever change that. You can't stop me. Those kids belong to me. They are now the eternal objects of my affection and of my love. That's the truth of this passage, and it's great news. Fourth, God did all this to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In other words, God did all of this so that we would praise him because of his grace instead of prostituting and cheapening his grace. That's why God did this, was so that we would praise him because of his grace rather than prostituting or cheapening his grace. Another preacher says all of this this way. This work of being chosen to be loved, and it's a mark of God's will, his decision. It's a mark of his pleasure, desire to do so. It's like, it's like God is saying this. I've loved you since before the world began, so don't doubt me now. This message of God's love preceding and outlasting our failures this message was meant to give us a profound sense of confidence and security and assurance in God's love so that we would not despair in situations of great difficulty and pain and shame. Jesus signed the adoption papers with his blood and nothing can erase the signature of blood that Jesus placed on our adoption papers. find that hard to believe? Is that hard to rest in? Struggle with doubting that? Struggle with doubting that God loves you this much? Do you look into the mirror of your soul? Do you see someone who is ugly or full of shame? Guilty or unwanted? Unlovable or hopeless? Do you doubt the truth of God's word to you? And with those questions freshly in your mind, watch this video again from last week. I remember my little niece ran up to me and told me, we learned about Jesus today. And I could tell by her smile she was so excited to learn about this man that she did not quite know yet, but she knew without a doubt for it to be true because after all, mommy said so. 
And that was the first time in my life that I looked into the eyes of a child and envied them because she had no idea of what it feels like to doubt. What it feels like to have your entire belief system overload with skepticism. To never know the day that you would finally be able to live beyond the shadow of a doubt. I've lived in its darkness for so long. It, it seems like I have all the right questions, but never enough answers. And my faith is small enough to fit in the cracks of my palms, God. Every night I lay my head down to sleep, the city of my mind is attacked by a legion of questions threatening the living rooms of my sanity and holding them hostage. Can you help me? Last year, my grandmother laid in a hospital bed like a bus stop waiting for God to come pick her up. I had never seen such pain and such confidence living in the same eyes when she told me, I don't know what I'm gonna do, but I know who I belong to, and I was so happy for her. And something inside of me wished that somehow before she passed away, she could pass down her confidence in God to me like an old family picture. I remember sitting in the back row of a cold sanctuary, crying because I desperately wanted what the preacher was saying to be true, but my doubts were preaching a sermon of their own and the streams of my tears turned into oceans of frustration. I remember sitting in a college classroom and the only thing being tested is my faith in God. The only thing passing is my hope. Me and a backpack full of fear and nowhere to go. No one to help me unpack. I sleep. I sleep, but I never rest. These lines around my eyes are not wrinkles. They are maps that show you the winding roads that lead to my pain. I'm tired. I'm tired. And I'm longing for the day that I can place my fingers in his nail-pierced hands because, honestly, I've considered quitting, but where will I go? Back? There's no home for the living in the land of the dead, so I keep pressing forward. Today I have faith, but I can't make any promises about tomorrow. I'm surprised I've held on this long. God, just make me feel like I'm not crazy. God, let me know that I'm not just making friends with these walls. When I pray, I'm not questioning you. I just got questions. Don't leave me here. Don't, don't leave me. My child, my child, when it seems like you have all the right questions, but never enough answers and your faith is small enough to fit in the cracks of your palms, I told you, Faith the size of mustard seeds can rearrange whole landscapes and turn mountains into open highways. Faith comes by my word, so maybe you've cuffed your ears. My child, don't be childish. But consider the child whose faith has not quite learned the definition of impossible. Have your questions. I'm not telling you to have a blind faith. I'm telling you to consider the blind men who had faith and believed my words before they were even able to see me. Consider the birds that eat from my hand and do not fall from the sky without my consent. So how much more will I love the ones that I died for? Before you doubt me, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts, and you will see they are just as empty as the tomb that I've walked from. <laughs> truth is, truth is, you know I'm here. You know my truth, and you're scared. Scared of what that means. Scared of what that should cost you. 
that one day they will all laugh at you, laugh you right out of their classrooms and scorn you out of their courtrooms. But my love serves as an eviction notice to anxiety. When they cast stones, my love cast out fear. I am the author and finisher of your faith. I've never started a work that I will not finish. I am the one. I am the one who will give you courage to stare death in the face and say, how dare you try to scare me? I know who I belong to. And when it feels like you are drowning, when it feels like you are drowning in a sea of your questions, just know I'm there. I'm there. Like when I drowned in the Red Sea of my blood for you and these hands that took holes will hold you. And when I told you that I would love you forever, I meant it. Don't you see these rings in my hands? See, we are married. For better or for worse. Through sickness and in health, through faith and through questions, till death brings us closer, you are mine. You are mine, and I am yours, I promise. Wow. 30 seconds to wrap this up. God chose us to be united to Jesus be sanctified in Jesus, to be adopted through Jesus. Is this a truth that you can say from the depths of your soul that you know is true and that this is who you are, chosen by God to be united to God, to be sanctified by God, to be adopted by God? Father, thank you for this passage and thank you for this message. I just pray, God, that your spirit would take the truths of this message. You would continue to unfold those into our hearts and minds throughout this week. Pray, God, that you would remind us that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from our Father's love, from your love. Pray that you would give us that confidence, trembling and fearful as we may be when we come into your presence, as we come to you. I pray, God, that you would help us to rest assured that the blood signature of Christ's sacrifice on our adoption papers enables our sanctification through our union to you. I pray, God, that you would help us to rest assured that we have been chosen by you, and if there are any here who have never heard this message and never surrendered to you, I pray, God, that this would serve as the invitation to come and to believe, to trust. I pray that you remind us that this is who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close today, we'll close in communion, prayer, and worship. I invite you guys to stick around for that. If you are a believer, then this meal is for you. If you're not a believer and you're here, then this meal is not for you, not because we don't like you, but because we love you. We say that because we don't want you to do anything that would just be some blind religious activity that others are doing. So we just invite you to stay right where you're at or come up and get some prayer. We'd love to pray with you, talk with you about what we just preached and, and what's going on here. Um, but if you are a believer, this meal is for you to celebrate the truth of the, of the doctrines we just heard preached from this passage that Christ's body and blood was broken and poured out on your behalf so that you can become part of the family. You do not have to be a member of our church to receive communion and to take part in communion here. Um, so we just invite you all to come. Uh, so we'll close in that. There'll be two of us near the front to pray with you and serve that communion. And 
uh, thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for uh, letting us go a little bit long today as well. Love you guys. Let's stand and worship. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.